Hi, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Second hour, typically, we have a deeper dive into a topic, and today in our second hour, we'll be talking with Paul Richards and some of the folks from PTZ Optics and learning all about their new computer vision CV-enabled PTZ camera line. So it should be a very interesting second hour. Mitch, that takes us up to time for our first hour questions, though, from our producers. What do we have today? First in from Jeffrey Reyes in the Bronx, New York. I'm using a Blackmagic 6K as my webcam, and I like to leave it always on for video calls. Are there any issues with leaving it on for weeks at a time? I'm also considering if there are drawbacks to powering it on and off multiple times a day. Let's start with Chris Fenwick. Chris? Jeffrey, I have the 6K Pro. I plugged it in. Uh, like a year and a half ago, I think. And it's been on uh, almost without exception the whole time. Uh, I, I unplugged it a couple of weeks ago to, when I turned my desk. Um, I will tell you this, that after a year and a half or however long I've had it, uh, I went through the phantom button pushing uh, I tr tried to do something with the with the remote. I run it with the remote off the phone, and I walked around back and I pulled my curtain open, and the screen was just going. It had changed itself into German, which wasn't easy, but I was able to get it back into English mode, and and everything was fine. the The solve for the random button pushing or uh, self-button pushing was uh, I wiped down the screen really well. So, But, yeah, it's been on for a y literally a year and a half. I leave it on uh, for the weekends when I leave. It's on all the time forever. Tom Ferguson. Yes, same here. I leave my camera on all the time. The only thing I would do is go around and turn down the brightness on that LCD monitor so that it doesn't burn in. And Mitch Hill. Ditto and ditto. I've heard the uh, the monitor um, LCD screen in the back will get wacky after a while. So uh, keep it on. It works fine. Alex, your thoughts? Uh, I've had mine on, you know, for a year, year and a half, or I had one on before I put the Sony on to test. And uh, barely turned it off unless I was moving something around. Monitor went bad. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering. I can still turn it on and put it there, but it's like there's half of it that isn't working. So I would recommend... Either turning, you know, there is a point where the monitor will go bad if it's too too uh, on too long. Um, and so I would think about turning the monitor. I think you can turn the monitor off now. It wasn't a, an available option when we first bought them, but I think you could turn. I think if you do that, you could probably leave it on for forever. You know, it's just, but the monitor does not like to be on all the time. I run mine off of shore power and it's on a switch on my desk here. So I turn mine on and off every day. So just for those of you who are interested in doing it the other way, that doesn't seem to have hurt it either. I think they built a pretty robust product here and doesn't have much fragility in that area. Uh, Jesse Kester. It doesn't turn the monitor off completely. It turns the backlight on the monitor off. So as soon as you tap it, it comes back awake and you can still interact with the, the screen while the backlight is off. Okay, I think we've covered that. Next question. Alton Christensen from New York, New York, asking, looking for six-foot cables to power a Nanlite 6C. <laughs> Bless you. Bless Using you. an Anchor Gallium Nitride charger and Anchor six-foot cables, charged a MacBook and other tube lights and Abbotful, but not the Pavo tubes. Use a three-foot cable and the Pavo tubes charge. Why? Solutions. Tom Ferguson will start us out here. Tom? 
Oh, that's a USB-C cable. Find yourself a good charging cable and it should work. I'm doing three of them here in the office. Okay, uh, Alex Lindsay. I found that they would not charge if I was using uh, more than 2.4, so 2.4 amps. So maybe uh, Tom may have a different experience than me, but I found that I had to use the USB-A to USB-C connections for them, and it was a 2.4 amp. So the old, the older chargers worked just fine for any length that I had. Um, if I gave it, if I actually gave it more juice, I found that they wouldn't charge at all. Interesting. You think there's maybe a protection circuit in and there? These are the ones that I have. Mine are old. They're the very first generation, so maybe it was something. But it just it, you could plug it into an older one. But if you put in a new one, it just didn't take any power at all. Okay. Well, hopefully, Alton, that that gives you some methods to explore what might be going on. Next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Is anyone using Apple's Freedom, or excuse me, Freeform app? And what for? Could this be used as a poor man's omni-graffle? And Jesse Kester will start us. Actually, we use this on pretty much um, every production we do, and we use it to build out the floor plans. And one thing that's nice about Freeform is just like notes, you can share it with everybody on your team who has an Apple-branded cellular device, and that's been very convenient for us in communicating what to put and where on a production. Alex. I'm starting it. So um, so I'm, I'm actually trying to manage the second hours or my understanding of what we're doing on the second hours with it. So I built this big grid and I have little post-its that I'm putting on. So I'm, I think I'm tre treating it less like OmniGraffle and more like um, uh, Miro. So Miro is kind of the thing that I've used a lot in the past. So I'm kind of seeing how it, uh, uh, how it approaches that. So far, it's pretty good. I have kind of a list of things, of requests <laughs> for, for the, uh, that I'm going to probably put in um, of, of things that are there that, that I think would make it a little smoother based on someone who's used it from Miro. You know, I think I, I, so I'm not trying to make it Miro, but I think that it, it, Miro's got a lot of things that, that they could probably copy. Um, anyway, so I think that, but I think that it's really interesting. I've had trouble sharing it. So I keep on sharing links to people and they haven't been able to get in. And we're trying to figure out what that mechanism is or what I'm doing wrong or what it's limited to. Um, so that's the only real challenge that we've had so far is getting people into it. But overall, it, it seems fun. It's really fun if you're using an iPad because you sit there and draw on it and so on and so forth. But uh, um, I've been mostly playing it on a Mac of, of all things. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Sounds like a real interesting tool. So thanks for the question. I think Craig. it's going to be, by the way, I, I think it's going to be a big tool. Like it's going to be as big as, you know, I mean, it's, I think that there's a lot of possibility. And I think that companies that are in this kind of area of, thought my mapping should be worried that Mac users are all going to, if this comes for free, it's going to be very hard to get people to, to move over. I wouldn't leave Miro for what I'd use it for right now, but if they added like 10 features, I probably wouldn't need it anymore. Do you think it's as superior on the Mac side to what you've used before as, for example, the break between Keynote and PowerPoint? People, a lot of people who use Keynote just feel that it's been more developed. You think of that same thing for this freeform tool? It, right now, it's not. I mean, it, right now, it's not more, more, um, it's, it's step one. And that's what Apple does. Apple, what Apple doesn't do, which I think a lot of people make the mistake of doing is they don't try to add everything they know that, that it needs day one. They add what it needs to be used day one, and then you just start seeing features. And so they, they don't, they, they tend to like let things settle, get feedback, work on it, make, do what they can do really, really well first. And then they start adding features. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see new features, you know, every six months or something like that, if they start adding little bits and pieces to it, maybe, maybe it'll wait every year, but that next 
the next two years will probably be all the features that I'm probably missing. Um, you know, th that's how Apple works. They they don't try to overdevelop it before the people see it um, because they, that way they can error correct more effectively. So I, I think that it's exactly what you would expect from a first try at something that is can get very complex. Nice. All right. Let's go on to the next question. Here's Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, for an LG 43UN700T-B 43-inch quad, how would you make up a cable harness to combine all the HDMI, USB, and power cables and then equip the quad with a Visa mount and stand that allowed it to go vertical? Courtney Gooden will start us off. Uh, well, that's a lot of cables to fit into um, into a harness. You know, they, they do have this... Um, Really, hmm. they do have uh, some expandable braided tubing on Amazon uh, that um, uh, you can squish over the cable. But there's a better type that is a split a split nylon tubing. It has a Velcro fastener, and uh, it it uh, splits down the middle. It's called Alex tubing. So Alex braided uh, cable tubing. Look for that in, in about an inch and a half. The problem with uh, feeding them through those expandable type of uh, accordion-type nylon sleeves is you've got four HDMI plugs on the end, and you're going to have to squeeze those through the tube uh, because they don't come off, and you can't solder new ones on the on the cable at the other end. Alex, you getting any uh, residuals on that? Or yeah, royalty? yeah, check comes every. I get I get ten cents a <laughs> ten cents a month. Yeah, awesome, Guy Cochran. Yeah, I was going to recommend the same, that, that Alex tubing. Here's a gentleman on uh, YouTube putting some of that on so you can see that you bundle, that you take those four HDMI, USB, and uh, power and put it all in one tube. I'll put a link in the chat to uh, Alex's uh, solution, which he doesn't get royalties on. The second part of the question is the stand. Um, 43 is kind of a weird number for, uh, because it's at the top of one range and at the bottom of another. So like the rolling stands would be... Uh, uh, 700 bucks for a chief and it could hold up to an 86 inch tv and 40 is really like the low end for a beefy one like that so it just depends on where you want to put it if you're just using it in a household that's kind of a overkill but for a stage like when we're at zoomtopia they were using these big ones and they were using them vertically and i believe they were chiefs um, those are pretty much industry standard peerless would be another one to take a look at those are some options for you alex yeah, and we use we use one called Loom, a Loom, and you can get it on Amazon as well. And it it's not you don't pull the cables through it. It it actually is opened. It's a nylon. It's nylon, and it's a webbing, and it basically is cut, and it just kind of overlaps itself. It wants to pull in, and so then you just kind of zip it. You zip your lines. You 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 put whatever you're going to put into it, and there's all kinds of there's little ones that are half inch. There's ones that are inch and a half, and they just have a seam all the way down. And there's nothing that you do to it. You just kind of let it just roll over itself. And we've used these for years. Um, you know, are they the best in the world? I don't know, but we man, we use them on a lot of cables. And because you can just pull the cables in, you can pull the cables out. You can pull one out if you want to. You can do all those things with them. The only thing I'll say is that I tend to when I use it, I I tend to tape these these six fingers. Uh, otherwise, it'll tear all my skin off as I start to as I because you you basically start pulling pulling down um, the cables. You pull down the um, the seam and you just it'll just go right in. But there's this nylon is sliding against your fingers, so just a little bit of tape on your fingers makes it not do that. That sounds like an extraordinarily useful tip. What kind of tape do you use? Gaff tape or gaff tape? Just gaff, gaff tape. It's was laying around. I mean, the I'm universal fixer. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, so usually it's gaff tape. The, the right hand is the most important because that's the one I use to thread it. Um, but the but I usually tape all six fingers just to be sure. <laughs> nice. All right. Next question. 
Jesse Kester from Glendale asking Mr. Fenwick, one starts to get the impression you're less enthusiastic about the AI than other members of the panel. Can you tell us why? Is it the tool sets themselves, the dehumanization of art, the quality of dialogue surrounding AI, or something else? And you would expect Chris to have raised his hand first. He did not. David Paskin did. So we're going to let David go before, and then Chris can defend himself for this. Oh, no, I think we need to let Chris start us off, if that's okay. I'll defer. Done. The short answer is I've seen all the Terminator movies. Uh, The slightly longer answer is I... I really do think that, uh, you know, I was talking with Jonas a couple of days ago, and he says, he says, well, everybody likes writing stuff with chat GPT, but I haven't met anybody that likes reading something from chat GPT. And I have seen multiple videos in the last couple of weeks, which I am certain, like certain, that the scripts were done entirely in chat GPT. And they're really bad. I mean, they're not, they're not good. And, and, if, and if, if you define good as a series of words uh, fashioned into sentences with punctuation, then it's awesome. But good writing is a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. And if you don't know the difference, then you're one of those people that probably would have been perfectly happy with VHS for 30 years. And, and, and if you think it's good, I, I, I feel sorry for you. It's not good yet. It might get better. But I will honestly say that I'm glad that at 60 years old, I just turned 60 a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, uh, I'm glad uh, I'm closer to retirement than the moment where artificial intelligence is uh, indistinguishable from humanity. I mean, I, I, I just, I literally just don't want to live in that world. I'd rather, you know, jump in the car and drive across country with my wife and never touch a computer again. But, um, uh, I think, I think that's the key thing. There, there's a subtlety to perfection. It's the, it's the last, it's the last 3%. And that's what I want to experience, not the bell curve. And I think that this stuff currently, it's just the bell curve. It, it might get better, but again, Terminator movies, watch them. Watch them all before you subscribe to that stuff. Somehow I think I know what you really feel about this. David Paskin. David? I just wanted to throw out there that uh, just yesterday, a dear, dear friend of mine um, posted that uh, he has uh, written and is publishing the first Bible commentary uh, created by ChatGPT. Uh, this is volume one. Uh, and he's got, um, you know, different, different selections in the style of Mary Oliver, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Spock. And it, the reason I'm sharing this is because I found myself actually feeling quite conflicted. Um, not because I'm worried about the quality of it. The quality is going to be what the quality is, but he's selling it on Amazon and, uh, he didn't write it. And, and that, I struggle. Rabbi, I would highly recommend that your friend read Exodus 32 again. <laughs> In the style of Dr. Seuss. And thank you. Thank you for knowing the reference to Exodus 32. Um, I guess we should just move to Alex Lindsay. Alex, what's your thought? Yeah, the, um, uh, you know, I think that 
a couple of things. One is there's a lot of text that doesn't need to be creative that I would like. I think that's probably written better than by ChatGPT than the people that were writing it. This is stuff like uh, the notes for the the um, you know there are information that would be good for us to have like the like uh, what happened commentary not commentary but just what happened at a city council meeting what happened at a um, you know there's there's things there that that would be great if if something just wrote it summarized it turned it into audio, made it available so people could understand what was going on. There's a lot of things that are left undone because there's no one to write it um, or no one very good at it. <laughs> anyway, you don't hire, you don't, you don't hire Pulitzer Prize winners to talk about the school council meeting. And so the, um, uh, so the, so I think that there's a, a big challenge uh, where I think that there's a 25, 30% of people that are writing things constantly for what we're reading that, that ChatGPT will outdo within the next year. You know, like it'll just, just the, it's, it's not that it, it's not going to change what a highly trained artist who really has refined their craft. It's not going to affect them anytime soon. Um, I think that it's, you know, so I think that that's the issue. Um, but being able to, there's a lot of stuff that we do that is pretty mechanical. Like when I, you know, I've cut stuff, you know, tried to explain to someone, you know, like the, you know, for a session, let's just say a session for, um, uh, you know, one of these conferences, I've had people cut hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the sessions. And I'm just, and most of the time we don't get to pick, you know, I'm not getting Nate Hill or, or, or Chris or somebody else to cut it. It's like, it's someone who, you know, is a little ahead of, they know how to use the switcher, you know? And in that case, I just need them to listen to the rules. When the person looks down, cut to the screen. When the person looks up, I need you to cut to them. When they start walking on the stage, go to a wide. When they stop, go to a close up. I can set those rules and then just have an AI just do it. And it will be better than 90% of those sessions that I've seen, you know, even, even recently by other people, you know. And so, so I think that, the, that what AI has the opportunity to do is, is n not need. Now, the, the, the challenge that has really come up that was brought up very quickly is, well, if people can't start there, where do they start? You know, like, you know, like, like if they can't get a job doing it. And I think that essentially what we're going to end up with is people having to train a lot longer you know, to, to be good at something because they have to be better than, than what the AI does, you know, and I think that that's going to be the challenge for folks is that, that, that training has to either start earlier for what they want to do, or it has to, or they're going to have to extend that, or, or it just has to get better. Learning has to get better because, you know, people are going to have to be better at their craft, you know, before, before they get into the workforce, because there won't be any entry level jobs where you can be really bad at what you do mm -hmm. and still just get to do it. And I think, so I think that's the real challenge there. I also think there's a lot of creativity. Like I'm building a, a PowerPoint, or not a PowerPoint, ugh, uh, a keynote deck. And I will say that I, as a challenge, I said, I'm going to build all my images for the keynote deck. Instead of going to iStock Photo, instead of go, you know searching or whatever, I'm just going to go to uh, to MidJourney. It's the best deck ever. Like the best, like, like, cause I'm just, I, I, you know, I sit there and I go, shit, give me one of these, give me one of these. Like it's just, it just, and, and it just, and, and it takes me a while to prompt it, but I prompt all these uh, illustrations that I want. And they're just so it's, I, I was like, I've never built a deck like this, you know? So as if you, if you it, to get back to it, it's not, someone didn't write it. I didn't draw those things, but I prompted them and I'm the only one that did it. And, and, and then also how, how, how else do you get things like this? This is, um, I was, you, you haven't seen this because I don't think Leo's posted it, but I, during Mac break, one of the things that I do is I, I play with mid journey on things that we're talking about. So something comes up and I go, Oh, I wonder what that would look like on, on, uh, on Mac break. So, uh, this was, um, for some reason it came into my head of Leo as a Lego. Um, uh, let's see here if I can get this. So there's Leo. 
<laughs> Leo has Legos, <laughs> which I thought was fun. And then we were talking about mining my, the Apple chart mine. I don't know how this got to charts, but like, you know, just asked it to make that that thing, right? And, and uh, you know, that, that's one of a hundred that were made, you know? So the point is, is that I think that there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fun that can be had. I produced images that each image would have taken a week for a person to do at least. And, and, it, and it wouldn't, and the idea that I can just spin through hundreds of images and look at them, I think it's, there's, I think we, we don't want to overlook the amount of creativity that's given to people who have ideas, but don't have the skills to be able to express things that they, that they want to express. So I think that, that, that there is some tools that are going to be really interesting. We've got Courtney next. Uh, yeah, I think, um, maybe, uh, Chris, you haven't, uh, used chat GPT correctly or, or whoever did the translation that you were listening to where it sounded dry and, and all the English words were perfect. You know, you can use write in the style of Hemingway or write in the style of Stephen King or if you were published enough, write in the style of Chris Fenwick. Uh, and it could use, it could apply that style. My favorite use for uh, GPT is translating um, uh Instruction manuals that were written by someone that didn't have English as their primary language. You know, they're, you, you've read all of them that are almost incomprehensible. I've cut them and pasted them in, and I just type translate colon, and I paste that text in, and it makes it perfectly readable and understandable, and it's great. I use it for that all the time. Chris? I'll make this quick. Alex, it's interesting. In your answer, you used the phrase, you said, chat GPT or whatever is is good. It's going to do a better job. And the exact, I'm going to use your words against you. The words you said were than the people that are writing it. It's going to do a better job than the people that are writing it. And my argument to, to that, or my, I think I, I don't remember saying that. I think I said, you did. But, I promise you. I think I said roll better, the better than, the, than the 30%. Yeah, where, where's that little red flag? You were going to throw the red, red flag. Roll the tape back. I promise you. <laughs> referee, you I wrote it down in the, in the notes here. I must have been. Um, but, I must but, have but here's the point about that. I would agree that there are many horrible writers out there that are passing themselves as writers. That they're, 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 and, and that's the failure. I, I don't know about our friends in the rest of the country, in the rest of the world, but in our country, our school systems are horrible. They're, these people are calling themselves writers and they're horrible at it. So yeah, uh, can a computer do better than an ill-educated or a poorly educated person who tries to pass themselves as a writer? Yeah, probably. And then, um, you know, uh, Courtney just said, you know, in the style of Chris Fenwick, first of all, nobody wants to read that. It's going to be horrible. But but it begs the question, if I'm going to ask this computer to write like this person or like this person or like this person or like this person, would ChatGPT, or would uh, MidJourney, if it was created 100 years ago, would MidJourney have ever painted anything like Pablo Picasso, who was in, very unique? Well, I mean, the, the reason that we saw so much unique, the reason we saw so much unique uh, art from the 19th century on was because of photography. So photography took away their business. Their business before that was making people's portraits, you know, and they, and suddenly there was this thing that would do portraits way better than they would. And they all had to do something different. So the, the explosion of the creativity that we've, that we saw in art from the, you know, the late 19th century to now was largely because the business that was keeping those people busy was gone. 
you know, like it was it was replaced by photography. So, so I, like I don't. That I think that we. we I just think have you to should look be a guest on uh, the third rail. We'll we could go this. on for a long, long time here. We got one more person. Mitch is going to pop in really quickly, Mitch, and then let's move on. I'm not an artist. I'm an art director, and I'm not a writer, but I'm an editor, and I think that's what this is allowing us to concentrate on our skills not the mechanics of making those things happen. I hope we keep getting these kind of questions. It was a fascinating discussion. Uh, let's no move on. We've got a lot of the questions from other people. Next. From David Paskin in Miami, Florida, asking, wondering what you make of the recent layoffs in the tech sector. Is this right-sizing after the pandemic, streamlining the workforce, or a reflection of a downturn in tech in general? Courtney's going to start us off. Courtney? Well, it's a global uh, downturn in the economy, you know, and that's one of the problems in all these big corporations that uh, put on a lot of people during the boom days, uh, you know, especially the tech corporations that found uh, a lot more users that had to, to uh, commute via Zoom and were buying a lot of new equipment. You know, they put on a lot of extra people to deal with all that. And now that that boom is over, they're laying a lot of people off. A lot of also the media companies are finding a lot of consolidation in the media industry. Disney, I, mean, I think, announced a whole bunch of layoffs today. So, um, you're seeing a lot of that in a lot of the media companies. Uh, and I think they may be using the downturn in the economy, the global economy, as an excuse to pare back some of their chat, you know, the their bloat in the executive fields. Jesse Kester. I think it's important to remember that when a pump uh, when a company goes public, their product is no longer their product. Their product is profit. They aren't morally beholden to their shareholders, they're contractually beholden to their shareholders and uh, th these type of what uh, acceptable losses are a reflection of that relationship. John Preto. Oops, John, are you muted? I'm not seeing him, but John dropped yeah. off. Yeah, he must have dropped. Sorry about that. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I think that Zoom's probably made the most sense of, of all of them, which is that they had to expand radically for years um, because of the because of what happened in, in the COVID, you know, um, in, the, in the pandemic. And they were going to have to f find at some point in time, you know, if they couldn't grow at that breakneck rate, you know, they'd have to figure out what to do. Um, I will say that the, the thing, the first thing that I do when I get either, even a contracting job at a lot of other uh, at, at, at large companies is, you know, I'm a as a contractor, I know I don't need to get laid off. All they have to do is not call tomorrow. And so you have this moment, you know, like you're you're in this moment where you get to be there for a little while, like a couple weeks, couple months, sometimes a couple for me, a couple years that you're part-time contracting for some big company in the South Bay, um, you know, different ones. And what you do very quickly is you um, you help everyone around you. <laughs> you know, like so you help you help people around you, you use, you have uh, you know, when I was at Lucasfilm, I had lunches all the time. I bring people into because how many people get to go to Skywalker Ranch? You know, you know, and I would, uh, you know, and and you know, buy people T-shirts and you know, get things going. And and what you do is you you I, I learned very early on to, you know, network very quickly and use the fact that I've, I I happen to have some position to spread as much wealth as possible while I was there. I think some people get burrowed into just doing their job and not really paying attention to the fact that you're in a place where other people want. How do you create opportunities for people around you? And that could be other companies, other people, other 
and I do it, I, I will admit, I don't do it as calculating as it sounds. I kind of just do it because it's fun. I, I've, now I have access to a bunch of cool things. <laughs> so I, so I want to spread that out. But, but I, um, but like when I got an interview at Lucasfilm, I bought $200 worth of t-shirts and sweatshirts and hats, not for me, but I was, you know, all my friends, <laughs> like I got to be at Lucasfilm for it. I got to go to Skywalker Ranch once. I'm going to buy everybody something. I admit that I, you know, when you, and I don't, I don't think I really, again, I don't, think it back in the day I calculated it or even now, but I will say that it's extremely useful, you know, because when you spread what you know, when you spread the connections you have, when you spread those things out, you're investing in something far more important than money or your training or, you know, you're up, you're going up, you're, you're investing in, in your, in your pe in the people around you and people are always going to be the best investment that you can make. And so when you're in those positions, you want to try to spread that out as much as you can, because it, it's not going to be only the people who weren't you know, it's, there's a lot of good people that get laid off on these big layoffs, you know, and so it's not, it's not really a, a measure of them. It's just a measure of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But you can take advantage when you have that position to do as much with it as you can. Chris, do you have a quick thought? Quick thought. Yeah. Uh, Alex, along your, uh, the lines of, you know, how to deal with things as a contractor. One of the things I always tell the people that I work for as a contractor is I say, you know, my job here is to make you a hero. I, you know, I want you to get all the accolades. I want you to be the hero. You don't even have to use my name. Just call me back. Just call, just call me back. I want I, you to be the hero. I always would remind people if anyone got felt like they were too safe in these things. Just, just remember, you're the red shirt. <laughs> just, just you know, like you know, like every every time you go to one of these things as a contractor working on a live event. You're the red shirt. If something I, goes wrong, you're the one that, that the monster's going to eat. <laughs> along those lines, I've even said to people, I go, hey, you need somebody to blame, use me. You know, it, it, I, I will be your scapegoat. You know, yeah. I mean, call me back, but it's good to have it. I mean, frankly, that's why companies hire contractors so they oh, yeah. don't have to get fired. Oh, yeah. You know, and keep in mind, too, about the, the trend here. Uh, you do this stuff long enough and you see the trends. You see the trends. It's, and it's, Large corporations are almost like a, a living, breathing organism. They they inhale and they exhale. And this is an exhale. They were inhaling for a long time. And and, and the one thing you also want to look at is that for companies, uh, when everyone else is laying off, this is the safe time to do that. It doesn't hurt their their stock price as much. It doesn't hurt like everyone's kind of expecting it. it you know, it's, it's now rippling through. So they all kind of you know, do it, do whatever they're going to do right now, because if they do it in six months from now, when everyone else seems fine, then everyone's all upset. So that's what, that, so a lot of this is just kind of a, a little bit of a crowd, <laughs> crowd movement, which is horrible for the people who are in it, you know, and, um, but I think that the key, you know, again, I think that if you're, if you're good at what you do, you'll, you'll, you'll find another, another space. Next question. Morgan Price, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, asking, Keynote and Motion appear to be output slightly different ProRes Quad 4 files. My HyperDeck only sees one or the other on the SD card. What is the compressor trick to make them all visible on the HyperDeck? I don't seem to have the right settings. Mitchell? Essentially, that's exactly the problem. Uh, HyperDecks are persnickety. There's my favorite word today. Um, uh, as far as the settings go, you can only use one or the other, and you got to make sure it's exactly the same and probably they're not exactly the same, even though they're quad four files. So I would run them all through compressor with a setting that, you know, runs fine on hyperdeck and then uh, you're recompressing them. I know, but if you got a mezzanine format in there, like ProRes, you should be okay doing that. Alex. 
Yeah, going from 4444 to 4444 is not going to affect the quality of your image. Run exactly what Mitch said. Run them all through compressor, and then they'll all work. Um, you know, it's too hard to try to figure out which one is which. Um, you know, just just run run one through, make sure that it works, and then just run them all through that, and then you'll be fine. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, can you daisy chain A10 Mini Pros of all kinds? Jesse Kessler is going to start us out here. Jesse? I'm not sure exactly what your goal is in daisy chaining them, but we absolutely do this on every client production that we do when we're live switching a live stream. And what we do is we take the second HDMI out from the ATEM Mini Extreme Pro, plug that into an ATEM Mini, and have that as our backup feed. We connect that to a laptop and have that on a separate uh, internet connection from our main feed. So if anything goes wrong with the main feed, uh, the video pass through goes, the, the video edit we're doing goes right into the ATEM Mini. And that is our, our backup. I think that's what you mean when you say daisy chaining, but I could be wrong. Mitchell? Yeah, I'm with Jesse. At first, I thought USB daisy chaining, which, of course, you can't do. Um, and wouldn't that uh, increase the black crush problem that uh, one has? It doesn't because you're using the HDMI out and uh, the color uh, science is correct from one unit to the other. You're just dealing with uh, daisy chaining. And it's okay. Alex? Uh, I've done the most I've done is uh, I've daisy chained three uh, A10 minis into one more A10 mini. So so I built a four ME A10 with uh, four ATEMs just because we had them laying around so the so that you could feed them. You could be cutting different shows. Uh, my goal was to you know c connect them all to companion and really build a four ME, but I never got around to that. I just wired them up. Um, you do need to print a case for that. So I I, I printed a, a stand that would hold them all stick, you know, stacked on top of each other. So the answer is yes, not only can you daisy chain them, you can, you can do a lot of daisy chaining if you want. Courtney? You can just make sure um, uh, they're all set to the same frame rate. That way they will uh, uh, lack a lot of latency. You will cut back on your latency by daisy chain. Cool. Next question. Jesse Kester in Glendale asking, we're gearing up to travel with our Pelican cases. Performative though it may be, we'd like to have padlocks on the cases. Any recommendations for TSA compliant locks? And we are aware of the irony of choosing a lock because it's easy to remove. Courtney, help us out. And the main reason to, to put locks on your luggage is just to keep the looky-loos out or the baggage handler that might get a little greedy and look at the what's inside. I've used these master locks, the combo locks. Uh, it's easier than using a keyed lock. Um, they're all TSA compliant. The TSA key will fit in them. And of course, uh, a combo lock is a lot easier to use in a production because you can give the, sorry, you can give the, uh, give the combination to multiple people and you can change the combination from job to job so that you can, uh, you know, if you work with those people again, that old combination may not work anymore. So just keep track of what the combination is. Change the combination. And a warning, though, uh, the TSA keys have been duplicated and distributed, and a lot of baggage handlers have copies of them. Ooh, Alex. Yeah, the uh, the TSA locks are one-dimensional, so they're just flat. And they someone spread them out and let someone take a picture of them for the Washington Post article um, to talk about it. And, you know, some TSA person that wasn't really thinking about what they just did because that was all the combinations that are available and you can't go back because everyone's made all these locks. So um, so basically, uh, all your locks are invalid. Um, the, the main advantage of doing the locks is uh, to that you don't have to use zip ties. <laughs> so I prefer zip ties myself. 
And the reason I prefer the zip ties is that I use colored zip ties, you know, bright orange, bright whatever. In addition to being a little easier to see when they come out of baggage claim, um, if they're clear, I know that, that it tells me that TSA went through that bag because TSA will not put zip ties on your bags, but they will replace them. So if you put a zip tie on your bag, TSA will put another zip tie on it when it goes out. And so that tells me which bags TSA went through. And those are usually the ones we open first to see if they broke anything. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, asking, I pay for a Zoom Pro license. Is anyone getting frequent upsell offers inside of the desktop client? I find this frustrating to have to close banners all the time. Curious if the business plans get this too. Alex? I don't know. I don't, I don't get anything in the app. So I, I maybe I've missed that, but I do get like two emails a day. <laughs> so, so definitely a lot of push to, to upgrade. Guy Cochran. Yeah, on the enterprise side, I don't see any ads whatsoever. We have uh, 100 licenses. I don't see any. There's uh, nowhere to go across from our whole team. Like they're like, they're like, oh, that guy's got enough. You can't, you can't <laughs> go <laughs> enough. David Baskin. On the business side, I don't, don't see any ads at all. Okay, so it sounds like Alexander's just you. Sorry. Next question. Art Aldrich from New York City. Suggestions for the tallest light stand I can fit into a Pelican 1510 will be used for an Insta360 link camera. Alex. Yeah, we use these. Um, they're called, and I'm just going to, I, that last, um, that last answer went so much faster than I expected. Um, it's called a, uh, an, I want to say it's either an LCST or STLC, and I'm just trying to get to it as fast as I can on my, my orders. It's the LSCT. See, see, if you're dyslexic, you can just have a whole bunch of different, I have all the letters were there just in the wrong order. ProMaster LSCT. Uh, and this is, we actually use these, um, they're, they're a little bit more expensive. They're $85. Um, they fold very low. So that means that we use them that way because if you're using 360, you can paint them, paint them out. That's how we got to start using them, but they're very light. They fold into themselves. And so they'll fit into the 1510 or a travel bag. Um, they have a quarter 20 on the top and you can, and when we do the Michael Krasny show, we use the links and we put them on these, uh, tripods specifically. So, um, so that is the ProMaster LS-CT compact travel light stand. Excellent. Next question. Next question from Steve Voller in Minneapolis, Minnesota. What are your favorite stores that are not related to video or audio, but that provide interesting solutions to production problems? I love West Marine. John Preto, you're back. This is super ironic because the toughest epoxy that we've ever tested in the rocketry industry is West Systems Epoxy 105. And it's sold at West Marine and that's what I use in all of the rocket builds that we have. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, sorry, John Ferguson, or Tom Ferguson. Well, I find myself when I'm trying to get something to work at Ace Hardware. So there you go. And Mitchell. Practice supply. Okay. Well, there you got three good choices. I tend to wander Home Depot aisles, but everybody has their own favorites uh, that are an Ace. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I was going to mention Granger because they're a good uh, mail order and then they have all kinds of parts, mechanical, doodads, motors, things like that. What draws me to Ace is the bolt room. I love the fact that I can buy two toggle bolts and not have to get a blister pack of five, which I never use. Alex? Yeah, uh, Granger, I grew up, um, I grew up in having to go to Granger about once a week and I can literally just spend an afternoon in there without just wandering around looking and stuff on the, the, the big warehouse. If you've ever been to a Granger warehouse, it's like the professional version of Home Depot. So it's like Home Depot, and then you just go up a couple levels and you end up with Granger. It's amazing. 
Next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. has a question. Would the Alex braided cable be a good solution for combining Ethernet and SDI cables for pan-tilt zoom cameras? And any other recommendations for this use? Alex. Uh, when we had um, uh, the Sony's uh, BRC uh, 900s and 1000s, that's exactly how we did it. <laughs> so it's not that it could be useful. That's how we loomed them was with those looms uh, to get the cables to, to the um, the to the 900s and the 1000s. So to, to a PZZ and to Ozos and to other things, exactly what we did. Mitchell. Yeah, the braided cables are cool. I'm, I'm, I especially like pushing them together and having that little bulb in the middle and then moving it along. But um, I like the uh, the braiding or uh, the system that uh, that Alex mentioned earlier with the zipper in it, uh, the neoprene. That's uh, a pretty cool setup, and you can open it and close it as many times as you need to. The big challenge is length, you know, with that. And so the um, the neoprene usually you can't get a hundred feet in a, at a time. You know, that's what we're you know when we're looming them, we we buy them in hundred foot rolls. Hmm, interesting. All right, next question. And it's from Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Anyone with a line into BirdDog know when the 4K quad will support simultaneous encoding and decoding. The feature was prominently displayed on the website for many months, but the asterisk grows even more doubtful. Guy Cochran. Well, I have an email into Amon, and we'll see well, if we can get to the bottom of it. They have a lot of stuff that they're working on, and it's one of those things where where does it land in all of their uh, cues of, of things to, to fix. So uh, for now, it's a, you have to get another device. But, yeah, it's it's a bummer. There's a lot of upset folks in, in newsrooms that bought those thinking that they would be the solution to a problem. And then uh, I, there's some people that have four or five of them, and they're not happy. So I'll, I'll shoot that email to Amon and see what he says. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. With five to six digits worth of Dante connections, how do you find specific connections in Dante controller? I'd bet the classic matrix grid display would be like needle in a haystack. I would imagine that whenever things get complex like that, I don't know what everybody else does. I tend to turn to Omnigraphel and just see if I can create my own grid and make sense out of it that way. Alex, what are you thinking about? Exactly. I mean, you just have whatever you're going to use for drawing, whether it's H2R or, or OmniGraphle or something else. Uh, when you start getting into a lot of connections of pretty much anything, I mean, my as I switch over to SDI, I started kind of fiddling with it, but now I'm sitting down this weekend and literally just drawing the whole thing out. Like, this is exactly where I want everything to go. I figured I can't think any other way. So I need that drawing to go back to it. And here's the most important part. As you change it, what you're doing, you'll, once you get it built, you'll want to change it. You change the drawing while you're changing the, um, you know, while you're changing the, the wiring so that the drawing stays as an as built, as opposed to what it started as. And if you can do that, um, then you'll, you'll be in a pretty good place where you need to, when you need to fix things, you'll know where to go. Courtney. Uh, question. Does Dante allow, uh, you to group things together into subgroups so that you could gather together certain inputs and certain outputs into subgroups. That way it'd be easier. Not to that I know of. Like, yeah. uh, you know, like DMX does. Yeah. Hmm. Not, that I, not that I know of. I don't know of any way to, to do that effectively. Okay. I think this is also, by oh. the way, why people use Ravenna. So usually like people like me will look at Ravenna and just go, what the what? You know, like, like you have to write an equation to get a certain, you know, thing like it's Ravenna is a is a crazy um it's it's basically the open source version of Dante and um but when you get into it has been explained to me I have made fun of Ravenna in the past and not been very excited about it but it has been explained to me because of its nature 
you can build all those connections and you can write programs that manage all of that and you can do things that you can't, you know, it, it's so it's really painful if you're under a couple hundred connections uh, to use Ravenna. It is super powerful if you go over that and go into lots of connections that have to be um, managed uh, effectively. So the other, other way to do that is Ravenna and it's free. It's just, it requires like an electrical engineering degree to use as far as, far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so so you, need, you need someone who specializes in that. But that's like, I, I believe that's what I've been, uh, at least I've been told that is used for like the Olympics and that type of thing um, because it can be configured uh, more effectively at, at scale. Interesting. Next question. Matteo Mazzeri and Ansi France asking, when organizing a hybrid conference in a hotel in Africa, Maputo, what would be the ideal checklist of material services to have? Jesse, start us out. Uh, I can't uh, speak on materials, but I will speak a moment on services. I haven't done production in Mozambique, but I've done a handful in Kenya. And when we're sourcing uh, fixers, drivers, and security in Kenya, um, we only go with uh, with uh, personal recommendations from people that we trust. Like people, it, it has to be a known network that you're you're jumping into. Alex, yeah, you you know, typically what we try to do in most of these countries is to find. Uh, I've done a lot of work in about five or six, well, eight or nine countries in Africa, and one of the things we want to do is find a local. Um, uh, we got someone with an open mic and a dog. Oh, I can hear it. Um, so. Um, uh, the, um, uh, one of the things you want to do is have a, um, you, you want to find a local team to do most of the work for you. So what we, and the reason for that is not just because, uh, it's less expensive. It's also because you want to manage, um, you want to manage the, the connection to the country. So the audio folks there will know where to find things. The video folks there will know where to find things. Also, uh, you know, it's not appreciated if you come in and bring in an entirely external crew. Um, and so bad things can happen, you know. So so you just need to know that, you know, you know, hiring local staff is a very important part of the ecosystem that you're in. It also means that the next time you come, uh, you, you'll have people that you can, you know, some of them people will turn out and some people won't. Um, but you want to, you'll be slowly able to build more and more of a connection, you know, with the folks that are there. Um, there's always good people. And I mean, you'd be, I mean, I've done work in Zimbabwe and I remember going, trying to find an audio engineer and I ended up just going to a concert and seeing the audio engineer and he was one of the best audio engineers I've ever worked with, you know? And so they're, they're, they're in the country and they're in every country. You just have to find them. And what's interesting is, is that you'll find that an African engineer will know more about what they do than most American engineers when you find the high-end ones because they had to fix everything. They have to take that mixer apart and like rewire it and then put it back together. They have to build their own cables from scratch. They have to figure out how to make something work that didn't work. And their, their understanding is, you know, super deep, you know, when it comes to that. So I would highly recommend... Um, doing the research to find the folks. If you talk to the State Department about who they do their their events with, if you talk to large corporations that are in the area that you ask who they do their events with, and they'll say, oh, it's just Cube, or oh, it's just this, or oh, it's just this is what we use for everything. Talk to the large convention center about who they use for production. Those are the people that are going to, they're going to be able to guide you toward people that are there. Then I just have the core, my core staff um, is, you know, my TD, my audio engineer, and usually an EIC are the, are the three people that I'll definitely bring in, maybe one or two other people. And after that, I'm going to find people locally and I'm going to, you know, um, make that, make that work and train people to where I need them to be. I've come in and had camera operators where, you know, we train them in 
four hours and then they're they're shooting the plenary you know like and so and they do great as long as you have a strong td that knows how to tell them what to do um and they are you know and they they're attentive they'll 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 do they'll do really well um so you just you know you don't want to assume that you can't find the local the teams to do it because they're all there you just have to figure out who they who they actually are the biggest thing you need is ups's and preferably um uh you know dual conversion ups's because the power will be bad and so the power will go up and down and it'll hurt your power supplies um and so so you want things that are going to even out your power even if you don't think you're going to lose power you got to have ups's on everything you have otherwise it'll it'll burn up your power supplies chris fenwick okay i'm going to be honest if you're going to go to africa listen to listen to Alex's uh, uh, opinion much more than me. And I'm absolutely shoehorning a piece of data into this, into this discussion right here. You talk about, you know, what you need to take. I saw this thing the other day and I thought it was totally cool. It is made by Rode. It's for attaching microphones and cameras and bears anything with a threaded thing. It breaks down into all these different thread sizes and it's the size of a keychain. You can put this on your keychain and you have all these adapters and it just clips on and you're done. And I just had to shoehorn that little bit of information into the show at some point today. So I go. figured this would go. do. So everybody uh, enjoying this show is now prepared for next Christmas for all your tech friends. And let's go to the next question. Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland asked, can passive microphone antennas be used with active antenna splitters? Does powered antenna splitter supply power for antenna? What could cause damage? Um, this is a, so passive microphone antennas are not going to have, I, I don't think you're going to be in trouble here. I can't, I don't think that an antenna is anything that a current delivered to it is going to cause a big problem with Courtney. What do you think? Well, active antenna splitters usually are designed to be used with passive antennas. Uh, the amplifier is in the splitter. And so you, you hook a passive antenna into the antenna inputs on the splitter and they then go through an amplifier combiner and uh, then go output uh, out of that into your receiver. So uh, I think if I understand this question correctly, uh, it shouldn't do damage to passive uh, uh, passive antennas. I wouldn't put a splitter, I wouldn't put an active antenna splitter into an active antenna splitter, cascade them, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but um, because there is... Uh, power going maybe down that uh, yeah the key thing with uh with antennas is just to make sure the length is right I, that is the one thing that i was always taught from beginning of working with antenna systems is depending on the frequency of the broadcast the antenna length is mission critical i've taken short antennas and replaced them accidentally with longer ones and they do not work as well so that's the one thing uh, let's also, move on uh, oh, yeah go ahead courtney also, I was going to mention that if you're using a diversity system, there's two antenna channels, so it's amplified, and there might be you can might be able to put two sets of two antennas on that splitter, so you could put uh, a pair out over there and a pair out over there, and make sure those two separate channels stay separate and they go into your uh, receiver as separate channels. Absolutely. Next question. Xander Snell from Miami, Florida, asking, Last night I had a problem with a 14-inch MacBook Pro M1 HDMI into an up-down cross-converter. I had to put an A10 Mini in between for the converter to see the signal. Any advice for reliable conversion of HDMI from any source to SDI that always works? Alex. It's usually when you're having that issue, you're having an issue with your uh, EDID. So this is the identification of the basically the, the Mac 
is saying, hey, what do you want? And the, and the other device is going, no, I, you just tell me what you want. And then they, they go back and forth and they're, <laughs> they're just trying to be nice to each other and then nothing gets done. So um, you need something that is going to define uh, the EDID. So when the, when the Mac says, hey, what do you want? It goes, I want 1080p 60. <laughs> like, you know, I want, this is what I want. So if you, there's pass-throughs that you can get for that. So you plug that into there and go, and I had this problem with my Blackbird. I had this eight by eight and I couldn't get any of my Macs to, to talk to it. And then I went in to the, to the interface and just said, ask for this and everything worked immediately. So you just need to get something that's a little piece of hardware that will make that work. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul says, how does an editor, writer, producer, videographer, or audio engineer get on IMDb? Jesse Kester. Uh, there's really two ways you can do this. The first is to be involved in a production that ends up on IMDb, and then you'll be put up there with the, with the rest of the cast and crew. The other way is to get an IMDb Pro account and start submitting your own projects. And what you'll discover when you get an IMDb Pro account is that there is absolutely nobody at the back end of IMDb. It is all user submitted content and there is, you know, there's no curation going on on that website. And a lot of the magic of IMDb will dissipate once you start to realize how that site actually operates. Courtney. I think they may do, or at least they used to do, some verification for uncredited stuff. If you appear in visual credits that appear at the end of a film, they scrape that, and if once the film is listed or, or TV show is listed on IMDb, they scrape the credits off and, and pull that into the database. If you don't, uh, if you're uncredited, but you worked on something and you have proof of it, you can go to the IMDb Help Center, and they have a whole article on adding uh, filmography credits and it has certain guidelines and for eligibility and what they can accept as credits. And, you know, they, they look for call sheets, proof that you worked on a particular production if you are uncredited in the, on the actual film itself. But you can submit that. There are submission ways to do it and uh, get yourself on. Let's go to the next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA, asking, replacement teleprompter glass cartridge did not come with a foam padding I'm accustomed to seeing around the perimeter of the plastic housing. Suitable padding replacement, black in color, best methods preventing breakage and transport and handling. Alex. I, I, I'm not 100% sure what, what you're asking there. If you're talking about the, the part that goes down the edges where the teleprompter glass sits, um, we've actually cut small pieces of velvet um, and then double-sided tape them and put them back in because they got ripped up or pulled off or, or, or chipped or whatever. And that, that, you know, real thin version gives it a nice soft place to sit. Um, that's usually what, what, what we do there. Um, the, keeping the glass um, safe is a whole nother problem, which I'll let Courtney kind of get into. Courtney. Oh, when I designed teleprompters 40 years ago, what we did is we, and our glass was designed to go into aluminum channeling, which held the glass. And what we did is we made the channeling, the slots in the channeling slightly bigger, and we took uh, Teflon tape, uh, which is a sticky Teflon tape that is very slippery, and we put it on the edge of the glass and folded it over so that there's a little bit of, uh, of the tape on either surface of the glass. Maybe sticks out about a sixteenth of an inch on each side and runs it down the edge of the glass. And that Teflon tape really... Uh, cushions the glass quite a bit from uh, any mechanical shock that comes from the side. Um, 
And it also makes it easier to slide in and out without uh, fracturing the glass uh, because it is only 90 thousandths thick and it can break very easily. Uh, it depends on whoever designed your teleprompter mounts. Another good thing you can use is find some neoprene tubing that uh, is uh, a diameter that will fit into whatever you're doing and then slit it from one end to the other and then put that along the edge of the glass and that can shock mount it uh, if it goes into something that's bigger and can accommodate that the thickness of that uh, split neoprene tubing. Excellent. Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana asking, I'm working with a nonprofit fundraiser using QR codes. I'm using no IP for web redirects for custom domain names. Is there a better way? Alex. Yeah, I use Hover for that, but yeah, we definitely, um, you can send it to a bit.ly or something like that, but I, I usually prefer, if I'm doing something for a company or if I'm doing something that I want to re remain control in control and stable, um, I create short URLs that I'm going to have the, that look appropriate for, if someone, what you want to look at is, if someone points at the QR code, you want a URL to show up that looks like it's part of that client's whatever they're doing. So it's, it is, you know, it's target.live or target.questions or target.whatever if, if you're working with target. Um, and so you want that to look good. It's $7 or $8 to do that. And it's worth it for them to give kind of, because that way it, it kind of ties that back in for the user and, and they don't feel like they're going to the wrong place uh, or they're being sent to something odd. And so it, it's, again, in, in how they feel about the event, that $8 or whatever, $7 or $8 to do hover or whatever is the way to do that, in my opinion. Um, you can definitely do shorteners, but I, I find that um, they just don't feel as personal. And for $8, I'd rather have it feel personal. And there's so many URLs now, you can make something up with a dot something really, really easily because there's so many options. John Prado. There's a platform called Trumpia, which is an SMS platform that allows you to do money raising via short code. Red Cross used it to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for disaster relief, and it's super easy for the end users to use all on their mobile device. Nice. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, OpenAI's chatbot offers paraphrases, whereas Google offers quotes. Which do we prefer? Let's start with John Preto. Not exactly what you're asking here, Paul, though that when they show when they showed Bard off yesterday, they actually showed you the sources on the bottom of the AI, which is super useful. And I think that's what you mean here. Uh, by paraphrasing, what they do is it's predictive, it's generative. It predicts the next word, and they don't show the sources on OpenAI. And on BARD, at least on the mock-ups, they actually were showing the sources of where the AI was pulling the data from. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, exactly right. If you need to show attribution where the where the information was sourced, you can uh, create uh, footnotes uh, with quoted stuff. Uh, even though, even if it's paraphrased, if the information came from a quoted, you know, from a quoted source, you could show it uh, down below. And that's what people are nervous about with OpenAI as to the accuracy of something. You know, you don't know where it came from, where they scraped that information that they included. And for uh, students that are, are creating papers using OpenAI, you want to use the paraphrase because it will rewrite things uh, so that it won't match up exactly to the quote so that the software that the teachers are using to find, find out plagiarism uh, will not kick it out. Here you go. Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana has a question. My low noise neck cooler, low decibel fan died and Amazon no longer sells that one. Anyone have a recommendation? 
I think this might be a DIY thing. I mean, there's so many low noise, low airflow fans now uh, out there because of the computer industry and everybody wanting something silent that'll blow a little bit of air across electronics that I would imagine that if you did a deeper search onto Amazon, you'd probably find a bunch of them. I know I have a little weird fan that I plug in that the, the blades of the fan are actually fabric. It is that one's a AC powered, so it actually does make a little noise and probably too much for your use. But I think there's something out there. Alex, do you have a thought? This is a neck cooler. This isn't like a. This isn't. He's not asking for a computer. Cooler. Oh, is he he's want one of those neck bags cooler. that you hang? Oh my gosh! So in in Cambodia, it works remarkably well to wet a piece of uh, wet a towel and or not a towel, but a um, a scarf, and then you wrap it around your you know wrap it around your neck, and it actually keeps you nice and cool. I've I've been at a. Uh, uh, 118 degrees in, in bottom bang. <laughs> Just constantly put more water on it. So, you know, there, there you go. Search Amazon for bandanas. Uh, we got time for a couple more little thoughts here. Jesse, go ahead. I put a Blackmagic Pocket 4K right above my desk and the vent fan is pointed at my face and it works a charm. Courtney, real quick. If I need a neck cooler, I find a, I found a thing uh, that has these uh, clay beads in it, and it goes for either hot or cold. You put it in the microwave if you want it hot. You put it in the freezer if you want it cold, and you wrap it around you, and it holds that heat or holds that cold onto your neck. Nicely done. All right. We're at the top of the next hour, and we are extremely excited today to have a couple of uh, friends from PTZ Optics. Paul Richards and Matthew Davis are in the house. Guys, how are you? Did you manage to get in okay here? Hi, Bill. Doing great. Thank you for having us. Hey, we're excited to have you here. I know you've got new things coming up, but for the people who aren't familiar with PTZ Optics, and there can't be that many of them out there, tell us a little bit about the background of what you guys do. Yeah, so um, Matt and I have uh, helped to start and uh, create PTZ Optics about seven years ago. And uh, just recently, we were at CES, and uh, I bumped into Guy, and he said, you got to come and, and show our friends at Office Hours the new computer vision stuff that you're working on. Matt has been working on that for almost six years. He wants me to show a six-year-old camera and then our brand new one that's shipping today and what he's done uh, there. But Matt's our lead engineer. Matt, why don't you uh, take it away? Yeah. Uh, Matthew Davis here. Um, like Paul said, I've kind of helped him get started as we explored the idea of making some new cameras that had some new features. Um that being said, yes, uh, computer vision has been of extreme interest to me for a long time, along with a handful of other unique things. Um, but we're excited to demo even a five to six year old example of what we've been doing and then where we're hoping to take this stuff moving forward. Nice. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So you, we'll jump, I guess we'll just jump right in. Um, so Matt created a camera about um, six years ago called the Huddle Cam HD Simple Track 2, and it's an auto tracking camera. And uh, one of the things we wanted to show you guys is Matt was thinking about computer vision for a long time ago, and he created this camera that will automatically track you. And then when you go into a certain area of the frame, it can send an HTTP command. And what we're going to do is show you how it's going to send a command to vMix. So nice. kind of from a one-man band perspective, I don't know if Mike can show my screen share really quickly, um, but I'll show you how this works on the, on the back end here. This is the camera view, and this is our stage. And there's this little box over here on the right side of our stage. And when I walk over there and wave my hand there, it's going to switch uh, the input in vMix. Um, so this is just a high-level computer vision. If there's something in a frame, 
do something. But then uh, hopefully, if we have enough time, I want to show you guys uh, something that I've been sh- I showed Guy at CES is that you know in t- with today's technology, anyone can create their own computer vision model, and so you can create a model to track your cat, you can create a model to track a horse, you can create a model to follow birds around the sky. So I wanted to show you how easy that is with a really cool new startup called RoboFlow. But first, let me demonstrate this uh, auto tracking camera here. So uh, let's see if I go to this auto tracking camera shot. My producer is going to switch to it in a second here. Um, this is the auto tracking camera. And it is designed to follow presenters on stage. And when I get into this chair and wave my hand over here, it's going to cut to, uh, in vMix, cuts to this, this shot right here. So as a producer, one-man band kind of thing, you can have these areas of your stage or your presentation space that cut to a specific input in vMix. Paul, is there a limit to the number of hotspots you can set up, or can you do a, you know, a dozen in different places if the host is good enough to understand where they all are? Yeah. Uh, Paul, do you mind if I field this one? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. All right. So uh, with this six-year-old implementation, you are limited to four of these zones. Um, that being said, there is a fifth zone that gets used a little differently. So not only can you set specific TCP, UDP, or HTTP commands to fire when that zone is entered, um, you also can set a specific command for on exit. So when you exit that zone and you're allowing the AI to resume its operations, you can tell it to switch to a far out zoom. You could have a certain scene switch. You could call a preset on another camera. Um, but you can ensure that as somebody exits a zone, you're always setting yourself up for that that next shot, ultimately. Fabulous. Um, so is it complex to program these things or is it something that a lot of people could do pretty easily just from their desktop? They could do it very easily from their desktop. Um, essentially, you're going to sit there and you're going to draw a little box in an area. Um, and then you literally can go to a panel in that configuration utility Paul was showing um, that ultimately just acts as a remote for the camera. It's not handling the processing itself. Um, and you just put in there an HTTP string. If it's a TCP or UDP source, you can put in there the IP address, a port, and then whatever command you wish to send. I know PTZ cameras have just become a huge thing since the pandemic kind of set, shut things down. Can you talk or can you or Paul talk about overall what you've seen out there in the marketplace, how it's how the last three or four years has affected your business and just the production industry as well in terms of remote operated cameras? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the neatest things to watch going on at the moment is the amount of people who have always wanted to get into production. And either they didn't know how, they couldn't afford, you know, we're seeing so many people come on um, that you're starting to see people break traditional concepts of what a production is, how it's done, sometimes for the better, sometimes not. Um, but it is really exciting to start getting all these different dreams and hopes and perspectives on what a production is. So I think the, the neatest thing for me has been seeing a lot of people that were not traditionally in this field, in this area diving in and so excited to not only get involved, but once they start learning enough, they want to start upping their game. They want professional equipment. They want more know-how. And that's typically when they start finding shows like this one here. <laughs> now, does computer vision work on all the models up and down the PTZ optics line, or are there certain ones that it required? Yeah. So operate? at the 
Yeah, at the moment, um, existing unit, Simple Track 2 does this automation like Paul's showing where you can kind of do a one-man band production. Uh, as far as some of the new things we're going to be showcasing in a moment, that is going to be limited to our brand new um, Move 4K line, um, which focuses more on NDI, and then also on our new Link 4K line, which is going to focus on Dante. Nice. And I think we have a question in from John Preto here. John, did you have something you wanted to ask? Uh, I don't know if this is the right time. Is Stephen Hayward still working with you guys? Yes, he is. He's fantastic. Um, he's a fantastic guy, and he's been very helpful for me over the years. He's a great, great addition to the team. Yeah, he was an amazing resource to add to the team. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have um, a gentleman that had approached me. I think it was NAB or something. Um, won't put out his name without his permission here, but uh, had done a lot of high-end productions for TV studios. And he was the one that started educating me on, cool, you made a good camera. Now let's teach you what production actually wants the camera to do. Um, but having Steven on the team, you know, it just, it's almost like short circuiting that where it was like, cool, I've got somebody literally, I can put this right in front of them and get immediate feedback. So we're going to bounce back and forth a little bit between our, our, uh, producer questions here. Uh, let's get to a couple of them here and then we're going to come back. And if you have another subject you want us to go into, we'll dive into that. So Mitch, what have we got? Here's one from Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay, California area. What company manufactures the image sensors in PTZ optics cameras? Yeah. Um, so if you're talking our older Gen 2 line, still shipping, um, those were pretty much Panasonic image sensors you'd find throughout. Um, if you're looking at our new Move and Link line, you're looking at Sony image sensors now. Nice. Next question. From Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. How are you using ChatGPT along with computer vision to auto-cut in vMix? I actually did want to show that. Let me stand up because the, uh, this is kind of the second half of this. This camera will actually should, when I get out of this chair, switch to my tracking camera here. And uh, I want to show you this because with ChatGPT, it's, it's really cool. I know very little. I'm not a computer programmer, and I know very little about computer programming. And learning about all of this uh, computer vision stuff, I've been taking the computer vision models, sending it into ChatGPT, and saying, hey, I need it to control this PTZ camera. Hey, I need it to you know, send a command to vMix. And because vMix's API has been around for so long, um, literally ChatGPT is able to take the code. And but from a conversation, turn it make it do what I what we want it to do for our production. So it's pretty cool. I'll show you guys um, a basketball production uh, that we set up with computer vision here. I've got a basketball here. And this is a basketball. And Mike, I need you to cut to... Oh, yeah, he's, he's trying to do, do it. Here we go. Um, this is a basketball that a computer vision model is tracking. So we wanted to show you guys... Um, a couple different computer vision models and then how to actually make them. But you can see here, you can track almost any object um, that you can imagine. If you can create a video of it, if you can see it with your human eyes, you can train a computer vision model to track a, an object with a PTZ camera. Can you go into a little more depth about what computer vision actually is? Is it a pattern recognition thing? Is it, is it a combination of AI? What is it? Yeah, so that's that's actually a fun, fun topic, because when you get to the the absolute core root of, of computer vision, it's all about object recognition. 
Um, you know, at it's at, at the base sense, whether that object is a color, whether that object is a round shape, or if it's actually physically a basketball, um, when you're starting to think about computer vision, it's thinking about object recognition. Ultimately, um, you can create a masterpiece of daisy chained logic that comes off of that, but it's all about recognizing that object. And once the object is recognized, how does that communicate to the camera what to do? Or is that deep into the technical weeds? No, no. It, it, I no, mean, it's not that yeah, hard. Paul, if you want to field that one, go for it. Yeah, let me let me show you my screen because I think it visually that this will this will really help. Let me make sure you guys can see this. Um, if my producers let me know when you can see my screen. Do you see it? We're there now. Okay, so this is RoboFlow, great company, and and basically what I did here was I took a, some pictures of myself pointing a laser pointer around a room. So I took a video, call it maybe it was 60 seconds, and I went through and I showed the, I annotated on top of each frame of the image, hey, this is a laser pointer. This is a laser pointer. You know, this is what you're looking for. And once you've done that, you can train a computer vision model. Um, so once you've done the training, you can download it and then you can run it on your computer and you can run a camera onto it. So let me see if I can find my laser pointer here. And now I can have, it can, it can re recognize the laser pointer across the room. That looks almost like magic. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully I didn't oversimplify that, but basically we took the video, we, we took the file, we took the images for each piece of the video, showed it what it was looking for. And then trained a model and downloaded it. And then I actually did use ChatGPT to give it the PTZ Optics API. And that's how we did it. Amazing. John uh, Predator, you had another question? What version of the Jetson are you guys using? We aren't using a Jetson. Oh, I saw a Jetson on that screen that he just had up where you could output it to Jetson. Oh, uh, yeah. Take so, a look. At, let's show that really quickly. Yeah. So, so RoboFlow will allow you to uh, to run the models on a Jetson if you wanted to do this on premise. Um, one of the things that's going on with what Paul's showing you right now. This is early on and kind of starting to explore bringing um, the computer vision in a, in a much more professional sense into production. Um, so what we're doing at the moment is kind of baby steps towards that goal. Um, we're looking for more feedback on what producers are actually looking for. And I've already got a nice laundry list kind of building at this point. Um, but we're starting to explore what models people would like to see. And in this instance, they're eventually uh, going to be running directly on the camera itself. So you're not going to need an extra piece of software. You're not going to need anything else. Now, if you want to further refine it, you're going to be able to update that model. Um, but at the moment, the way these are being deployed is with a middleman service, basically. Nice. Uh, the questions are flowing in. I'm not at all surprised. Let's get a couple more handled here. Jesse Mills from San Francisco again. What is the type and size of image sensor in PTZ Optics' highest tier camera? So the new uh, Move 4K 30X and Link 4K 30X both use the Sony image sensor with a 1 over 1.8 inch image sensor. Nice. Next question. Next question in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. How would the computer vision model work with something like PTZ Optics Twitch camera control extension? 
Um, I don't at the moment. It wouldn't really interact with the Twitch extension itself. It's it's actually going to be serving a very similar purpose as the Twitch extension. Um, and for anyone not familiar, the PTZ Optics Twitch extension allows somebody who is running a channel on Twitch to allow end users for potentially a fee or for free to take control of the PTZ camera remotely. Um, so really this is in some sense replacing that type of functionality um but longer term the concepts are there where you could trigger these models you could trigger some of this functionality through a plugin like that twitch extension there seem like so many possibilities with this let me ask you each just to kind of spark the audience's understanding a simple wow that you didn't think about in terms of what you're imagining this technology could be used for something simple and something profound. So Paul, let's start with you. You know, have you been dreaming about what this can do in both wow and oh, that's cool modes? Yeah, I mean the the a simple one that I'm working with my own church on is people counting. And so, you know, a lot of pastors they they all have cameras, let's say every single one, but a lot of churches are live streaming their services. And one big question is how many people attended on Sunday, right? What was the attendance number? And I actually have some examples. We don't have to jump into them, but uh, people counting is a very simple, basic thing for computer vision to do. So simple one, hey, you've already got a live streaming camera. Just have it send you an email to tell you how full, you know, you know, the occupancy of a certain area, let it count how many people walked through. And then it gives you the attendance numbers for like a given Sunday. Very Um, nice. So that's a simple one. Um, more advanced stuff is like actually reading a scoreboard, for example. So let's say you've got a basketball scoreboard, you zoom a camera into it, and now you're saying, well, this area, you're taking that data and feeding it into your graphics system, for example. That's great. And how about you, Matthew? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, um, I'm going to kind of blur the lines there between those two things. And maybe it's just I've been pondering this for way too long. Um, <laughs> but so... One of my long-term goals, even, you know, six years ago was you see this automation that we can create. Um, and I'm seeing more and more producers that are adding more and more cameras into their mixes, whether it's to grab more shots, make sure they don't miss something. Um, but it is very unrealistic once you get beyond, you know, a handful of, of cameras to expect somebody to be able to actually drive all of these, know where everything's at at all times, especially when you get less people operating the system. Um, One of the things I've been exploring and would love to see to come to light is an interface that allows you producers to ultimately make micro adjustments to the AI on the fly. Um, To me, the ability for for you, you know, somebody who's producing content to focus on the content and the core of what's important and getting that message through. And, oh, well, maybe the framing is just slightly off. Let me adjust how the AI is handling that. on the fly, I think is really where I would love to start seeing this tech take off where it's not, hey, let's just let it automatically produce the entire event um, because that removes all the character from it, um, you know, that personal touch. So I think that you could maintain a lot of that that personal touch that makes it your content if ultimately you're just making those micro adjustments to the AI on the fly. So it's still your own content at that point. So would it express something like increased nose room by 20% as you do a panning shot out of a player moving, that kind of thing? 
Exactly. Or, oh, you know, the composition is missing this extra piece of content in the back. Maybe I want to swip, switch it to a left justified form on the fly or, yeah, bump it out another like two foot off from the person because we're just not getting those full hand motions that are going on. Um, you know, my minor things. But again, at the same time, it allows it to be your production without, you know, kind of making it all logic based. Yeah, well, those are the subtleties, I think, that, that humans so richly want to be able to control, make it your artistic expression rather than just what was programmed in the beginning. That sounds really interesting. Let's get to the next question. Claudio Legieri from Rome, Italy, asks a question about RoboFlow. Can the camera look at generic or specific an image, a QR code, target images, a Ruko board, be able to estimate the camera position to use it for simple augmented reality. Ooh, interesting. Which one of you wants to handle that? Um, so I can answer that as it's not necessarily a RoboFlow answer, though. Um, so ultimately, and if anybody has their cameras and wants to explore this, it is an experimental feature that is available on all new firmware. We just don't publicly share this. We do have 3D implemented on the cameras. Um, that being said, it's in some very early stages. But for the type of stuff you're talking about, if limited movement and feedback are needed, it serves that purpose with about a 50 millisecond delay at the moment. Um, so not quite at the point for true AR VR um, on the G2 cameras, but it is enough if you're making some minor movements to get that location feedback for pan, tilt, zoom and focus locations. Is that kind of data flowing back? It, it, is that it's just exploding out there? Is that where you see a lot of your efforts in the future is bi-directional? Yeah, yeah. I, I see a lot more instances for the cameras to be talking to software or the cloud and sharing a lot more about their states, um, which allows a producer to make a lot more intelligent decisions about what they want to do next, whether it's with the cameras or the talent. Yeah, makes sense. Next question, Mitch. Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. Uh, do you repair your PTZ cameras? Hypothetically, if I dropped one and possibly damaged the servos, could that be fixed? Or is it all a lost cause? Chris, I hope this isn't from personal experience, but guys, what, what say you? <laughs> it is not a lost cause at all. Even if your camera is out of warranty, we have wonderful programs in place to get that thing up and running again um, and, and, and affordable. Um, you know, we're not going to be charging the price of a brand new camera to make that happen. As nice. long as the image sensor is not totally shot at that point. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't note how far he dropped it. If this was second story, maybe the bets are off. Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana. What is the highest resolution of your cameras that support these auto tracking functions? Um, you can operate the cameras at 4K60 and get the auto tracking functions. Um, that being said, if you wanted to use our cameras, uh, leveraging the new NDI HX3 that is on the cameras, um, that will force you down to a 1080 60 resolution, but that's partially because of how HX3 um, is currently slated to work. Paul, you've already gone through a bunch of things that are kind of surprised me about how much you've disclosed here today. Are there any other things that you thought about you want to throw out for the audience so that they it, we get more questions? We've got still got another 10 questions ahead of us. <laughs> well, what one thing that's interesting about computer vision is that up until the past couple of years, to have computer vision implemented, it was going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So we always see this like democratization. You know, Zoom is amazing, right? You can get it for $19.99 a month. 
if anyone remembers video conferencing 10 years ago, it was a $100,000 box, right? It really was. It's surprising to think about. Vi uh, the same thing's happening with computer vision. And Matt has been able to put uh, the brand new auto tracking onto the Move 4K cameras. So that computer vision model is running on the camera. And so when you think about computer vision, you need a camera, right? But what you don't need anymore is, or at least soon in the, this coming future, is the $100,000 box that you used to have to buy. And when you're looking at RoboFlow, and RoboFlow is not the only company out there, that is a cloud-based, do-it-yourself, create-your-own-computer-vision model company. So it's really leveling the playing field. And um, what Matt's been, and if you want to see, so what I've shown so far, just so you guys know, is computer vision running on my really fast computer. But if you guys want to see computer vision running actually on the camera, we can show you that as well. Yeah, that'd be great to take a look at. I was about to ask you about processor requirements and things like that, but let's do this first. Go ahead and, and dive into the running on camera demo. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, Kyle to come in here um, as well. So Mike, uh, we're going to cut to cut uh, the wide auto tracking camera here. And so this is a Move 4K camera right here that we're sitting on. And uh, I'm going to grab someone to come and actually help me. And the reason why is because um, one of the really cool things... Oh, Tess is going to come too. I don't know if you guys know my co-host, Tess. Um, thank you, Tess, for coming in as well. Uh, so what I want to show here is with the auto tracking, when we turn it on, it has the ability to select between people. Um, so this is running directly on the camera. So if I select myself, some of the older auto tracking cameras essentially will uh, work on motion, but with this camera, we're going to, it's going to work uh, just by selecting an actual person. So it looks like it got you, Tess. Sorry, it looks like it got you for some reason. Let's see. I might ask if go. you're running our beta test firmware there. <laughs> Hold on, I think it's okay. So th there we go. So now it's cutting on me and it's, it, it's not worried about these guys over here. So that's a big change in auto tracking technology. This is all running on the camera. So the camera is running computer vision to select a person and identify who that person is, how they're different from another human with two eyes and a nose and a mouth. And so that was, a, it took, I don't know how long that took you, Matt, to get s set up, but I just wanted to show that. So that's running 100% on the camera. No computers or anything necessary to do that. And which camera? You said that this was, I guess I missed it as it went by. Uh, the Move 4K line. You'll see the same thing on our Link 4K Thanks, line. Um, and one of the other things, I think what Paul's almost highlighting here about the, it, it, it's going to sound like a subtle change because it's not like we haven't seen auto tracking cameras for a while. Um, we've rebuilt the engine on these specific units so that we can start to interact with other models. Um, so ultimately what we've moved away here from here is like a hard coded auto tracking solution to something where you can start to explore creating your own models and this engine knows how to ingest them and how to respond to the feedback it's getting from those models. Yeah, and in the old days, we used to have, you know, you have to have a clicker or something that it had a little RF thing that it would track you. Now it's just truly understanding the shape of that individual. And even when they cross over another individual, it understands who's who. That is a pretty big advance, it seems to me. I was about to ask you about processors and things like that. Is 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 some of this stuff just because we're getting so much more power out of... Uh, 
computer processors and, and GPUs and the rest of this? And how does that kind of factor into what you're able to do? Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of it is that they're finally defining a lot more of the base logic. So they're starting to, they're basically able to create um, hard-coded solutions where you can literally dump a little bit of information into it and know you're instantaneously, in electronic sense, going to get your feedback out. Um, you know, it's no longer sending it through a standard CPU. Um, it's sending it through something more like an FPGA or an ASIC, or there's some other variations out there at this point. Um, so what you're finding is there's a lot more base blocks to build off of that allow you to respond to these things much quicker, even if the processor speed technically hasn't increased. Nice. All right. Let's get back to a couple more questions. Mitch, what do we got? I got Jeffrey Powers in from Madison, Wisconsin. Jeffrey asks, hey, guys, what about stability for object identification, making sure the camera doesn't jerk around too much if the object is moved erratically? Ah. We're exploring that. I cannot... Um, provide any ETAs. I can't even guarantee that we will release the feature, but we are exploring that idea and a number of things related to that. Interesting. So kind of a fuzzy logic or kind of a ease in, ease out possibility mm -hmm. on top of where the object actually is. That's that. And I would imagine there's a lot of math going on back there. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney has a thought too. Courtney? Well, when you're tracking somebody in the auto track mode, uh, if that person is occluded, like they go behind a post or behind something that, that mm -hmm. hides them from the camera, does it reacquire their image if they pop up somewhere else after yeah. coming out the other side? Yeah, there's a few ways the camera can respond to that and handle it. Um, you can either set a preset where essentially it's going to go to a known scene. So a lot of people will set that as their stage, whatever their stage is. That way, if they happen to hide behind something and they come back out, cool, it's going to find them and immediately start tracking them. You can Paul's also be a demo right now. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, I was about to say, you'll, you know, I don't know if anybody uh, watches, I think it's the streaming idiots live stream, but you'll see a wonderful one with Tom Sinclair running around trying to hide from our cameras. Um, but essentially, yeah, it does an excellent job of analyzing where someone is um, and the speeds to try and judge where they should be. And even if they don't come out the other side, it's sitting there waiting for them to reemerge. Courtney, did that take care of what you're interested in? Yeah, and it, it does that even if there's somebody else moving in the frame. Very nice. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Douglas, uh, Douglas asks, how can the computer vision features of your cameras benefit typical production workflows? Yeah. Um, so I think actually the demo that Paul did earlier on with just the simple track, which is a much simpler version of what we're going to be able to accomplish here with these more advanced models, um, you know, is a prime example of how you can leverage computer vision for a standard production workflow so that you can automate camera presets, you can automate uh, scene switches, lower thirds. Um, and as you get more advanced with some of these models, you can start to have the lower thirds automated by recognition of the individual themselves. Um, so it's it's it is going to take a lot of the what I'm going to call grunt work that's involved in a lot of this out of it. So again, you know, the main goal here is to allow producers to be the artists they truly are and focus on creation. 
Will there ever be a cloud service where if I show up on somebody's camera, my lower third pops up out of the cloud for that? That would be very interesting. Um, um, I may have seen some demos on some very expensive systems that are capable of such things today. Um, but you're really reaching up Grass Valley and above when you're you're looking at things like that. <laughs> absolutely. All right. Uh, next question. From Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area, does this computer vision tech work in tandem with PTZ Optics cameras with UVC USB control? For example, someone wants to do PTZ control via client or Zoom room. Um, so if you're speaking about the Zoom rooms in particular and the Zoom clients, that UVC control functionality is is already built in. Um you we would need to work with zoom if you wanted their um system to be able to trigger uvc commands for these models um that being said i know this is something that zoom has already been exploring in the sense of being able to trigger things such as auto framing or auto tracking as two examples um but you should be looking at those in the same vein as all of this computer vision ai work so ultimately it is something where zoom could explore adding more triggers for more um regular styles of uh computer vision models that might live on a camera but you know it is zoom they work with everyone so unless more cameras implement the models the same way it is not really in their interest to do so and and deal with all the repercussions of such Makes sense. Next question. Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas, asking my experience with low cost PTZ cameras that they seem to be adapted from security cameras, particularly re-image quality options. Has that evolved with more recent offerings? Oh, yeah. I mean, that I mean, that's something I've been battling since we started this. Um, I did come from a much heavier background in the security industry. Um, and that being said, it's where I learned that the way those cameras were being built was tuned, whether you're talking about the code and the hardware, specifically for purposes geared towards security, as rightfully so they should have been. Um, that being said, you're still talking an image sensor. So the reality was there to go and take that same piece of hardware and make it operate differently because latency was possibly more important to you at that point. Maybe you gave up something else that security was looking for. Um, so that being said, while you'll find a lot of core components that could be identified between them as the same, the way those devices have actually been told to function, whether it's code or another piece of hardware added on, is very different from each other. Next question. Next one in for Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Roscoe asks if on-air zooms tend to bring attention to the camera, is there a way to auto-switch only after the zoom is completed? Pans to follow the action are fine, just not zooms. So are there limitations you can build into what the uh, AI is going to do? Yeah, when you get into the actual code that's controlling the cameras where you can put in thresholds um, and all sorts of other, you know, um, not emergency breaks, but stops um so that you can actually build in that logic if you wanted interrupts you could do that so it really comes down to as long as you built your models you can limit those models from interacting with the camera however you want um this is part of why we're taking some time though to explore what people really want to see these models accomplish we could go and slap a lot of the stuff on the camera but that 
doesn't mean it's actually valuable to you as an end user. Um, we want to make sure that this is as simple to operate as possible so people have a good experience. You know, we don't want their first touch on computer vision um, to be one that's frustrating for them. And that makes perfect sense. Next question. And next question is from Josh Kaufman at Pittsburgh, PA. Josh asked, are there any limitations in updating the camera firmware as the AI model advances over time? Are there space or hardware limitations in the current offerings of cameras? Um, so the hard, the firmware update should cause no problems for, uh, you know, adjustment of these models. Um, we have some that will reside specifically in firmware, um, much like the current auto tracking resides specifically in the firmware. That being said, we do have a very large amount of space that we have allocated to exploring additional models that can live on the camera. Um, and the beauty there is they are separated from the main operating system. So once they reside on there, unless you purposefully delete or remove them, those models will not be affected by any firmware updates. Are there camera manufacturers or camera classes, I guess I would think, that make it easier for you to work with them than others? Or is it easy to do this class of cameras and not that class of cameras? Uh, not really. Um, it's it's more so the computer vision model um, or system that you're working with that kind of determines the complexity more than anything. Um, and as you might imagine, a lot of that comes down to what you're willing to pay. Uh, the more expensive systems are much easier to operate, even though they offer some advanced functionality. And if you want to pinch some pennies, um, you might have to spend a little more time researching, a little more time massaging, but it's not that you can't get the same end result out. Nice. Next question. Larry Tang in Concord. Uh, what controller is everyone using for PTZ Optics? I had the PTZ Optics Super Joy, but it kept dropping the connection. So that is something that we have had a handful of people experience. I would highly recommend um, that individual reach out to PTZ Optic support um, as there are plenty of ways they know how to mitigate that issue when it does arise for a client. Um, but that being said, we find most people are utilizing the SuperJoy with our products, uh, mainly due to a lot of the automation features built into that. Next question. Eric Billings, Washington, D.C., Eric wants to know, does the tracking algorithm look at colors as well or just intensity gradients? Um, at the moment, intensity gradients. We will see when we get to colors as we're exploring some matrices to aid in, yet again, object identification. <laughs> it seems like you were being very careful at how you answered that. So research is ongoing, I would assume. Next yes. question. Jesse Mills, San Francisco, does PTZ Optics offer? Recording in progress. Put your own computer vision model on it. I think that SPCAs are going to put these in just to track the cats. You know, like, I mean, we're at a price point where industrial manufacturing's here, you know, the SPCA is here, and every small business is in the middle there. And whether you want to make sure people are wearing masks when they come into a healthcare facility, or you want to check that someone has a hard hat on, you know, in like kind of the business world all the way to, you know, I mean, there's just the whole world of Twitch, right? What are you doing? What do you want the camera to follow? Um, do you want it to follow a fish? Do you want it to follow? You know, there's just, I think the world is really about to democratize. And I think people are going to get really creative uh, with, with what they're able to do. I would be super pleased if uh, 
that all the neighborhood cameras will tell me where my dog Charlie is. He's never gotten out yeah. now, but I live in fear of that. So if it can recognize Charlie and <laughs> track him through <laughs> the neighborhood, I'm totally in. Let's go to the next question. Greg McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, can you talk more about your intent around supporting virtual studios, synchronizing PTZ with a virtual model in the background? Good question. Yeah. Um, so I will say that we currently are working with two companies that produce firmware or I mean software specifically for these purposes. Um, and those two companies have been incredibly helpful in helping us refine how this operates and not just refine how our 3D is currently operating to to interact in these worlds. Um, but they're helping us understand from I guess it's not the exact same type of production as, you know, somebody's using a TriCaster or using vMix. Um, it's definitely a very different beast. So while we spent a lot of time, you know, learning how production works on all these other systems, we're now trying to apply that same idea to how these AR VR systems work. So they've been kind enough, you know, occasionally when we reach out, they'll do an hour session teaching us how these things get used. And we're refining interfaces to make sure that in the end, this is going to do what you want. Even if you're a novice starting to dive into this, it's going to walk you through this process in a very easy way that doesn't use some very obscure terms that might mean nothing to you. Nice. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle, Washington. Can it identify a bird type and species? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, it it really it can. And I, I actually did this for my my dad, who is a big birder and has got a bunch of cameras around. And I built one that can do all kinds of different birds. And all you have to do is uh, train the model. And then you can train it to do as many different classes of objects as you'd like. Um, and I, have a, I can show you a demo if you guys want to see. We'd love to. But if you can tell the difference between a crow and a raven, you're in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I've got both out there, and I'm always getting them wrong. <laughs> Go ahead, Paul. Well, that might be that might be a little tricky to do, uh, but let me see if I can find my uh, my model that tells the difference between a beaver and a duck. Here it is, a muskrat. It's actually a muskrat. Um, so what I'm going to do this will probably be a pretty good um, demonstration of of what RoboFlow is capable of. This was a pretty interesting computer vision model that I created to do a whole bunch of different birds on the Chesapeake Bay, and. What you can do is you can deploy it with a webcam or you can actually just paste in a YouTube video. And I'll paste in this YouTube video. Guessing you guys can see this. And yes, confirm. So here, looks like there is a muskrat there. And so it's doing a pretty good job of, of getting the muskrat. And uh, I, I believe some at some point in this video, there is a bird. But... Uh, you can see it's doing it's doing a pretty good job there. Um, this is a, just in it, some of the examples from this test set. Let's see here. So we've got a bird. Um, that's a green heron. Um, these are blue teal ducks, and you can see it does a pretty good job of cat as a raccoon. Um, so you know it can do all kinds of of anything that you can see with your eyes. You can train a computer vision model to. To detect, and then the question is, what do you want to do with that, right? And so, for a production, it's like, well, if they're like in sports, if there's a yellow card, show the graphic of you know penalty in a in a soccer game, for example. 
Very nice. Next question. Next one in from, uh, let's see, excuse me, uh, Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA. How might you design the handoff from one PTZ camera to another? What criteria and switching control is accessible? Uh, who wants to take that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a number of ways you could do that. Um, you ultimately can have it so that when somebody reaches, um, and maybe I'll use the simple track two in combination with another PTZ camera of any sort, but essentially you can define a section where when somebody goes to move into it, it automatically sends a scene switch and ultimately calls a preset on a camera to which now you've transitioned to the other camera at that point. If I'm mistaken on what the question is, feel free to ask again. Yeah, hopefully that covered it. Next question. Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany, asking, what protocols are supported by your cameras? Does your API also expose the computer vision features? Okay, so we do offer uh, a raw form of Visca uh, to control the cameras. We offer a Sony implementation of Visca to control the cameras. We have UVC control. We have NDI control. Um, OnVIF control, um, layers and layers and layers. We got we got a lot of control options for you. Um, trying to remember what the second half of that question. Oh, in the API. So we also have a bunch of HTTP commands. Uh, beyond that, no, the computer vision is not currently exposed um, to the HTTP commands, with the exception um, of the auto tracking model. Uh, that being said, for anybody that has our Move 4K units already in hand, uh, with the coming firmware update in about two weeks, you are going to get access to a finalized version of that command that you could add to any control system to turn that on and off. Nice. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle, Washington's back with another question. Can we see the people counting in action? Yeah, hmm. that's a Paul, good you have one. A model? Yeah. Um, I do. I've got a model for this that we designed, and this this will be an interesting one. So what I'm going to do is I have a, a clip from a Sunday service here, and um, you can see the each person that walks in. You can kind of see th this is kind of interesting. Oh, sorry, I'm not showing it here. Um, not screen share. So if you could see this, um, there when when you have a, a computer vision model, you've really got two pretty um, important sliders here one is for a confidence so how confident do you want the model to be on a um so if you're overly confident you're not going to get any predictions and then if you're over if you're not confident you might get some false positives um so this is that slider there that's allowing us to choose that and then you've got an overlap threshold which allows you to decide all right what if there's two or three intersecting together and then you can see the predictions being made over here are those little numbers the confidence it has in e that each person is in truth a person? Yes. Yeah, makes sense. Nice. So hopefully that took care of it. Next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA. Are there wardrobe choices that will enhance or inhibit AI tracking? Could a targeting object or label be used to enhance the computer vision? Okay, if all your friends wear camo, does it still work? <laughs> um, in theory, at the moment, no. We haven't implemented anything in the cameras to read barcodes, QR codes, to try and identify any specific patterns. That being said, you can see plenty of examples in 
and and I'm guessing this is where it stems. This question stems from in the security world, where the cameras have been built to read QR codes, to read barcodes, and people have literally created hats and outfits covered in QR codes to purposefully confuse the cameras. Interesting. There will always be somebody who tries to get around any system. Mitchell had a question here in the midst of this. Mitch? Yeah, Matthew just answered. I wanted to know what I have to wear when I go out now. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yes, it's a hat with a QR code identifying your identical twin brother. That will always work. Let's move on to the next question. From Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Jeffrey asks, what's the depth perception of the Move 4K? Blurring backgrounds? Um. That'd be pretty easy to achieve depth of field wise with our 12x model. Um, obviously, as you move up to the 20s and 30s, they they have a, a much wider depth of field going on. So you are going to have more trouble creating that blurred background. Ultimately, um, if you're going for that effect, I would highly recommend exploring our 12x models. Um, they just make the job much easier for a lot of reasons based in physics. Next question. Guy Cochran in Seattle with a question. What were CES attendees' reactions upon seeing this new technology implemented? That's a great question. You know, we actually won uh, Best Camera for at CES, so that was really fun from Video Maker. Um, it, it was interesting. You know, when you're, it, it was great to be at CES. 100,000 people attended. And when you've got an auto tracking camera and people are looking at the screen, they see it's following them. Generally, they will stop in their tracks. Um, we were just at ISE in Barcelona recently, and people are trying to do exactly what uh, someone asked the question about. They're trying to trick the camera. They're trying to hide behind something, trying to see if it continue to follow them, trying to see if it really can identify them in a crowd of people, and then they can hide behind something and peek their head out. And it does a surprisingly good job, even in, in large crowds. Uh, so that usually, that really stops people in their tracks. Are you going to continue to do those kind of trade shows in the future? And will people find it easier to come in and say hi and, and ask their questions directly about these things? Yeah, the next big one for us is going to be NAM, the National uh, Association of Music Merchants show in Anaheim, California. And then directly after that, we'll, we'll be at the NAB show in Las Vegas. NAB is always fun. Well, good. We'll see you there. I think we're, we're planning on covering that for office hours this year. Let's go to the next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA, asking, what is the optimal lead time to training camera tracking prior to a show? Is there any provision now or in the future to real-time training while live? Um, I would say we are not at the point where I would look at customizing models for on-site even day of. Um, you, I think we will see that within the next year or two, where ultimately you're going to be not just customizing a model for your specific location, but specific times, you know, people being in there, that ability to maybe set it up an hour beforehand. Um, but I think we're probably a good three plus years out from truly being able to just kind of show up somewhere, throw your gear out and say, okay, let's make live adjustments to what you understand this object to be, as I'm also asking you to respond to this object. I'm interested, you, you guys work in this world that we're moving into with all sorts of artificial intelligence and the rest of this. The pace of this seems to be increasing almost exponentially. There's so many things. Now, this may be the result of a lot of research that's been quietly in the labs that you guys know about, but the public doesn't. And so the public is confronting a lot of this. Uh, what are, what Can you 
give us an your idea of an arc of how fast this is developing and whether or not we can ever catch up with it. <laughs> um, I, I think we are going to catch up with it because what I truly foresee, whether, and I guess I could use chat GPT as a very easy example of this. So at the moment, here's a machine you, for lack of a better term, you converse with, you're chatting with, um, and it's a back and forth conversation. But you're ultimately seeing the raw details in front of you. You know, if you're asking it to produce code, you're seeing that code. Whether you know what that code means or not, it's putting this raw information in front of you. Um, I think ultimately what's going to make this more approachable for most end users, you're not going to see this raw mess in the middle anymore. You're going to get this little blob. You know, you want a program written, it's going to be an executable or an image that pops out at the end. You're not going to see all this code for you to adjust. Um, you're going to get a deliverable. Um, so I think we're going to find a lot more of that occurring where it kind of makes all of this computer vision and AI seem a lot less scary to people. Absolutely. Yeah, I, have not, oh, I would, ahead, I would add, ahead. I would add that RoboFlow really blew my mind. And if you're interested in this, the first step to take it, if you can create a free account, you can upload some video and you can create a model and then you can test it with your webcam. And the reason why we uh, invested in an enterprise version of RoboFlow is so that customers and partners of ours can work with us and create models and deploy them. Um, so there's a lot of different deployment options. It doesn't always have to be deployed on the camera. That's actually a little bit trickier than deploying it on a computer right now. Uh, but the best thing to do is just create your first computer vision model if you're interested in this stuff and then feel confident in helping other people, maybe your clients, um, and kind of just explore you know, from there. Seems like a possibility. If you can really master this stuff here, it seems like an, it's a coming field that people are going to want people to be able to program these things. Uh, we have another question. Michael Smith in Silverado, California. Have you thought of incorporating it into a drone? Yes. Um, I will just say PTZ Optics has lightly explored the whole drone world for probably as long as we've been a company. Um, that being said, I think that there are some recent advancements in drone technology that are going to start to lend itself to, I'm not going to say productions, but more of the productions we see a lot of our customers in. Um and really, I think it's probably going to take about a year or two for those to come forth where we can start to explore adapting them to be a part of the same production as our own cameras. Yeah, and I would add, too, that drones are able to capture incredible footage. And I don't know if you're thinking about this from a live video perspective and live computer uh, vision capturing. But honestly, I've seen a lot of projects. It's really popular. Just get 20 minutes of aerial footage take that actual file, run it into the computer vision program, and it'll tell you how many pools did it see, uh, how many boats were in that footage, or how many you know, things that it saw from above. So you know, from land you know, management and all kinds of different things, it's not, it doesn't always need to be live video footage that you're running into the computer vision model that you're running on a drone. It could just be the footage itself, and you just run it right into your model. Interesting. I used to do a lot of work for the Bureau of Land Management. I would imagine things like the wild horse roundups that I used to narrate. Uh, those would be fabulous to be able to get a sense of herd size and how the herd is doing year by year and after a bad winter and all of those things, rather than the current process of sending guys out in Jeeps to have to do manual hand counts. So fascinating. Uh, next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA, asking, do camera settings such as color, contrast, sharpness, etc.?" affect the computer vision performance? 
yes and no. Um, technically, yes, they will affect the computer vision model. However, the way modern model models are generated mitigates a lot of this. Um, so one of the things when you generate a computer vision model, you're making variations of the same image. So you're not just saying, hey, here's a static image. I want you to learn it. You're saying, here's one image. Now let's rotate it 90 degrees. Let's rotate it 90 degrees. Let's rotate it 90 degrees. Let's blur it. Let's crop in. Let's change the brightness level. Let's... So you're giving it one image could be 50 other images because you've now varied that same image. And the main goal there is cool. If it's too bright, if it's too dark, it still knows what that object is. So modern instances are built to mitigate that. That being said, it can still have an impact if it goes outside of those ranges. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asking, what technologies are you following that will help you improve your own camera's tech or usability? Did you get a chance to wander around CES? I certainly did. And, you know, there's, there's some amazing things going on. Uh, you know, CES though, it, it, you, it's so widely different things. You can see a, a heated up lunchbox and then you can see a full body massage egg. And then you're <laughs> seeing Sony's new PTZ cameras and all their new vlogging cameras. And then their PlayStation, you know, I mean, it's just, it's so wide reaching. I, I'm interested to get, go to NAB and really kind of walk around there to see from a production standpoint, what everyone's doing. CES has gotten so big and so vast. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see enough that was close enough to answer that question, unfortunately. Um, okay. Oh, John Preto had a quick thought real fast in here and we're getting close to the end. Hey, you're, you said that you're able to run some of the computer vision models directly on the camera. Is that true? And, yes. and which, which processor are you guys running on the cameras? Uh, it's an ARM processor on the cameras. You know, nothing. We're not doing anything too crazy that you wouldn't find in another PTZ camera. Um, it's not like we've dropped, you know, one of the Ryzen uh, small board computers into there or something. Um, what you're finding is that we're spending a lot of time to figure out what can properly run on a limited processor, um, which is, again, where we're kind of trying to take our time to make sure that the models we wind up offering to you on these cameras are ones where we have, you know, full faith that it is going to reliably do this process at limited processing power. Paul, Matthew, this has been an excellent hour. Thank you very, very much for appearing on Office Hours. This is great. Where can people get a hold of you if they have questions or they want to interact with you a little bit more? Thank you so much for having us. Um, Matt suggested that we create a little uh, forum on StreamGeeks.com where if anyone has a computer vision question, you can go to StreamGeeks.com and post it there. So that's a good idea. And of course, we're at, at PTZ Optics on all the social medias. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Thank you very, very much. Uh, here is closed. Don't forget, um, we're looking for people who are interested in joining the Office Hours production team uh, and volunteers for the NAB production team for the shows coming up. Tomorrow, designing small venues for digital and hybrid events with Richard Lavery will be our topic. Uh, on Saturday, how to make video for the classroom. Our educators will be joining once again. Sunday, introspection as always. Don't forget the Isadora Lab with Elwin Wilson Spiro uh, later today the panelist and potential panelist meeting. There's an accessibility lab also for those of you. Laura Thompson's going to be doing that at 4.30 p.m. Pacific time here today. 
Thank you guys very, very much. It's we're at the end of our hour and we appreciate everybody being here. All the panelists, the back end people, our producers asking all the questions. Watch the credits as they roll. The credits tell you all the people behind the scenes making this possible. Roll credits and thanks everybody. See you tomorrow. This is our official whisper time, Paul Matthew. Thank you. That was a great presentation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you all for the questions. Really fun, guys. Thanks again. See you guys. Guy, great, great team, great presentation. Cantrack is behind the logo.